0: Oh, amen. Yes, amen. 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 if you will find a seat, and if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and make your way to Genesis chapter 1, Genesis in the beginning. very first page of your Bible, that's right. Opening lines, and it, as you find your way to Genesis chapter 1, I want to... Pray and ask the Lord to be with us over these next several minutes as we study His Word together. So let's pray. Lord, we come in here this morning confessing that You are indeed holy and that we can worship You simply for that fact that You are holy. Lord, we also know that we can worship. You, because you as a holy God did not leave us in our sin, but that you chose to condescend to us and to pull us out of our sin and rescue us in Christ. And so in that light this morning, Lord, we want to open your word. We want to study the very first page of the Bible and we want to see you in it. So I pray that you would be glorified, Lord, as we read your word together and as we study your word together this morning we ask all these things in Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. So if you're in Genesis one to three, if you're already there finding your way there, many of you are undoubtedly familiar with the phrase "All I really needed to know in life I learned in kindergarten." Uh, we may not know is that that phrase is actually the title of a poem. That was written by a man named Robert Fulgham. And now it's interesting, I was reading that poem this week, and it's really actually pretty profound. Here's just a few of the things he says All I really needed to know, I learned in kindergarten. It says, Wisdom was not found at the top of the graduate school mountain, but there in the sand pile at Sunday school. These are the things I learned share everything, play fair, don't hit people. Put your things back where you found them. Clean up your own mess. Don't take things that aren't yours. Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. And warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. And he goes on, and near the end of the poem, he says, take any of these things and extrapolate it into sophisticated Adult terms and apply it to your family life or your work or your government or your world, and it holds true and clear and firm. Now, what he's saying is not that we exhaust all the knowledge that there is to know in the world in kindergarten, but the building blocks for everything you need to know in life are introduced there in. Kindergarten. So what's the lesson? The lesson is that we would all do well to remember what we've learned way back then. For some of us, that's farther than others. For some of us, that's very near to us. But I think that we could say something very similar about the opening chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1-3. to That all we really need to know about the world, we learn in Genesis one to three. That's not to say that these chapters are very simple and elementary. Some things are, like, for example, God made the world. That is something that even the smallest child can understand. Other things that are introduced here sound simple at first, but take a lot of explaining, like human beings are made in the image of God. There's a loaded phrase right there. But it, it stands to reason, I think, that in these chapters, if you were to take the truth that they teach and extrapolate it into sophisticated terms throughout either the rest of the Bible or around the world, we will find that what is taught here in Genesis 1-3 to does indeed hold true and clear and firm. And so, I don't think it's an understatement this morning to say that you can't really understand the Bible unless you understand Genesis 1 to 3. And I would even go so far as to say you can't really understand the world rightly unless you understand Genesis 1 to 3. And so, the, that's part of the reason why we're going to spend the next several weeks studying these chapters together. Another part of that reason is because we are fastly entering into and are basically already in a world where the basic foundational truths of Genesis 1-3 to can no longer just be assumed by us. Especially by Christians as we think about how to speak the gospel to the unbelieving world. There is less and less common ground when it comes to basic truths. Like there is a God who exists, who created the world in power and in wisdom as we're going to see today. Or that all human beings have equal dignity, value, and worth, regardless of age or ability or anything else. Or the truth that marriage is a fixed reality that is intended to exist between a man and a woman for life. Or that people are not naturally good, but that we are inherently sinful people. So some of these truths, and as we're going to see, are things that we must make sure that we know for ourselves and that we have a firm, clear grasp of them because not only will that help strengthen us in our faith, but that will help us speak very clearly into this world that we live and and into people's lives who may not share these foundational truths. I firmly believe that we have the best story in the world to tell. And so Genesis 1 to 3 is going to be crucial for us to understand and to be able to articulate that story clearly and beautifully to the world. And and the first two chapters lay a foundation before sin ever enters into the world of the goodness and the beauty and the truth of God's creation. And then when sin does enter into the world in Genesis 3, we're going to see how that has broken and affected everything, but ultimately that God did not not leave us there without a promise and without a plan for redemption, even in Genesis chapter 3, the very beginning of the Bible. So this morning, what we're going to do is look at verses 1 through 25. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 25, the creation of the world right up until the creation of human beings. So look with me at the beginning of your Bible, I'm going to read the text for us. Beginning in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day and God said let the waters swarm with living swarm with the swarms of living creatures And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. We don't have to open our Bibles And read for very long before we realize who the main character of the Scriptures is. Mm -hmm. That it is the Creator. It is God who made everything. So these first words, in the beginning, God, are actually telling us something about the trajectory of the entire Bible. That the Bible is not primarily a book about you and me. The Bible is primarily a book about God. It does not say in the beginning human beings were created and they lived. It says, in the beginning, God. And it's interesting, the Bible does not offer any sort of explanation for why God exists in the beginning. There is no explanation, simply that He exists, that He is God. And so Genesis 1-1 tells us that nothing and no one else belongs at the center of the universe. So it's common today for you and I to hear that the most important question we can ask ourselves is, who am I? But what Genesis 1-1 tells us is that the most important question you can ask yourself first is, who is God? And those two questions, who am I, who is God, like they can almost kind of, we can get the order mixed up and we can not be sure, like, how do I know who God is if I don't know who I am, but I can't know who I am if I don't know who God is. And these are things that that people, that theologians have wrestled about for a long time. And let me just point you to one theologian that, listen to what John Calvin said when he was introducing his great work of theology and he asked this question, he says, all true knowledge starts with the knowledge of ourselves and the knowledge of God. And so he's trying to parse out, okay, which one is first? And he basically lands on the fact that it must be that knowledge of God precedes everything else. Listen to what he says. He says, when we look at ourselves, we seem to be just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our own injustice, of our vileness, of our folly and our impurity. And how are we convinced of that? It's not by looking deeper within ourselves. Listen to what he says. He says, once we begin to raise our thoughts to God and reflect on the kind of being that he is, then we see his absolute perfection, his absolute righteousness, his absolute power, his absolute wisdom and virtue. And then we begin to see ourselves correctly. And so that's what the opening pages of Genesis 1-1 compel us to do, to simply recognize that in the beginning, God is present and everything else is absent. God himself is present. Now, these might be the most humbling and necessary words that some of us need to hear today. That if you're the kind of person who loves to maybe rest in your accomplishments or loves to tell others or think about all the things that you have done in your life and to kind of build yourself up, you need to remember that in the beginning, God was there and you were not. But if you're also the kind of person who is maybe frustrated with the way that your life has turned out because things have not gone according to plan. And you, like Job, are beginning to wonder why in the world God has caused you to live a certain way or has caused things to happen to you, saying, I didn't deserve this, Lord. I deserved better than this. Maybe you need to hear what God said to Job when he was asking those questions. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when, when I started to make the sun rise every morning? Do you do that? Did you put the mountains and the seas in their place? Do you give life to the creatures on the earth and all the different things? And, and, and we realize that God is God and we are not him and that is good. And that is a good thing for us to know that God's eternal presence is the first thing that we're introduced to in Genesis 1.1. So if you're taking notes, you can put that first, God's eternal presence. That's what the Bible introduces us to first. But alongside that, the second thing that Genesis 1 tells us is that God also has seemingly effortless power that is at his disposal. He looked at all the different verbs in Genesis 1, describing the things that God did. Did you notice how simple and easy they were? It says, God said. We see that repeated just about at the beginning of each paragraph, right? God said, God said, let there be light, let there be waters, those things God says. And then we also see God separated. We see God separated. Called, so he names things. God made, God saw, God set. He set the stars in heaven. Finally, God blessed. Do you know what kinds of verbs you won't find in Genesis 1? God tried. Or God struggled. Or God sweat or God strained, God failed, we don't see any of those things. Yes, after our text, we see the phrase God rested, but that is not because God was tired. That is because God chose to stop what he was doing and to observe the beautiful creation that he made. Nowhere do we get the impression that God lost any of his power or his energy when he created the world that he is almost effortless in the way that he does everything as we think about that we often forget that genesis one was written to a specific audience and with this book all of genesis exodus leviticus numbers and deuteronomy the first five books of the bible were written we believe by moses and he was writing them probably when the people of Israel were wandering in the desert, compiling maybe these, these oral traditions and stories that they had, putting them together on paper, writing them down, and he was giving them to the people of Israel. And so if you'll remember in that narrative, when the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they had just come out of Egypt and they were going into the promised land. And what were they going to meet in the promised land? They were going to meet opposition in all the different nations that live there, who if you go and you study these things, you'll find that most of those nations had their own stories about creation, about the way in which the world came to be. And so it's as if God knew that his people were going to hear these things if they weren't already familiar with them. And in some of those stories, it's interesting, you find these groups of gods who are not limitless in their power but they have limited power and and in some of these kind of stories you have these gods who are fighting with one another and then one emerges victorious and so to kind of prove himself and to prove his strength he decides to create the world in, in others you have gods who are just tired of ruling the universe and so they create the world and humanity essentially to be their slaves this is the way that people viewed themselves and the surrounding nations. So you had all these myths, these stories going around, and then think about that. The true and living God who has condescended to the people of Israel and shown himself who he is, now in the middle of all those different things, says, No, there is no other God but me. I have no rivals. I have no equals. There is no one who is vying for my throne. God does not have to create the world to prove anything to anyone. These other gods in these other stories were self-serving. They wanted people and things to serve them, but the God that we're introduced to is self-giving. He just decides to create the world because he delights in giving of himself to it. And he is not limited in his power in any way, shape, or form. He's not a God who needs building materials in order to create the universe. That he speaks and the world listens. He speaks and mountains are formed and oceans are developed and plants and vegetation and all these things happen. So again, picture that you're, you're hearing this for the first time. You're among the congregation of Israel. You're wandering in the wilderness. You've seen God's power displayed. And now you're hearing the story of how he created the world. And you're knowing that you're heading into a different land. And your God is still God even when you get there. That he is the creator over everything. And that there is no one and that there is nothing that has authority over over your God. And the same is true for us today. Genesis 1 tells us that, that God has seemingly effortless power at his disposal, that he can do anything and everything according to his own good design as he pleases. So if you're following with me again, God is been eternally present from the beginning. He has effortless power in the way that he creates the world. And then third and finally what we're going to see this morning is that God has seemingly endless wisdom in the way that he has made the world as well. Now if you've thought about this before but even in Genesis 1 again we mention everything we need to know about the world we find in Genesis 1. Now Genesis 1 is not intended to be a scientific textbook that tells you everything about the way everything else works, but it does introduce the basic framework for the universe to which science and all the other disciplines do ultimately find their meaning. But let me show you this, that even in Genesis 1, we see how the created world fits together and functions exactly as God intends it. So if you'll notice, God did not just kind of arbitrarily throw the world together without any care, without any thought. The first three days of creation, I'm going to show this to you. The first three days of creation, for example, correspond to the second three days of creation. So if you look at day one, God says, let there be light. So he forms the light. And then in day four, God fills the expanse he fills this with the sun and the stars. So the 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 lesser lights he says the greater lights. God fills these things in day four of what he has created in day one, and then similarly look at day two. In day two he calls the expanse heaven. He separates out, and he ha- he has heaven and the skies and. And these things are all created. Now look at day five. Day five, God fills the skies with birds and things that fly. And he fills the seas with sea creatures. And then look at day three. He makes the earth, right? And then day six, God fills the earth. He fills the earth with plants and vegetation and animals and eventually people. And so everything that God made, it fits and it has its place, complements one another, if you will. But also everything that God made functions. Creation works exactly as God intends for it to work. So light that prepares for life to come. Then there's water that nourishes the earth. Then the earth, as a result, produces vegetation, which sustains animals. And then eventually, vegetation and animals, they sustain human beings. And, And so as creation is progressing, we are getting towards what we'll see next week, the creation of human beings, which is at the pinnacle or the top of everything God has made. But you see how there's wisdom in the way that even in Genesis 1, things progress toward that Happening, And that God, in the very fabric of the world, has woven his own wise design into it. And it's interesting, as I kind of thought about that this week and was, and was thinking about, how do we see the wisdom of God in the created world? And it's interesting that for thousands of years... Human beings have looked at nature and looked at things in nature and, and that has sparked kind of things in our minds of saying, oh, that would be neat if we did that as human beings too. And so just a very simple example of this is you think about airplanes. Where did the idea for airplanes come from? Seeing birds fly in the air with wings and wondering, okay, how can we do something similar? There is wisdom in the way that God created birds to fly. And then even as, as airplanes begin to develop to where they are today, if you'll notice on the wings of planes, they're, they're angled, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because seeing birds fly in a V formation, for example, we learn that that helps you be able to speed along and, and, and not feel as much resistance when a plane is flying. And so you'll see the wings that are now turned in this direction. We could continue. And for example, let me give you another one that's interesting. Velcro. Something that's very simple, very basic. Do you know how Velcro was invented? A Swiss engineer was hiking with his dog in the mountains, and he kept noticing that these little plants were sticking to his clothes and to his dog's fur. And he went and studied these little plants, and he learned that they had these almost tiny hooks that they attached themselves to things. And he, over time, later invented Velcro so that we can now use that in learning from nature. And just a final example, and perhaps the most incredible one of all, is if you study beehives... You know that honeycomb and beehives has that hexagonal shape that fits together perfectly. And well, as people have studied this, they have actually seen that that this shaping and fitting together is actually incredibly strong and it insulates a beehive so that heat can flow naturally through it. And so the honeycomb shape of a beehive has actually been used to design insulation to keep buildings warm. It's been used for lightweight building materials in different places. If you Google honeycomb buildings, you can find this all over the place of how we, human beings, the most sophisticated, intelligent people there is in God's creation, that we have had to be taught wisdom by bees and plants and birds. That God in His infinite knowledge saw fit to instruct us from his own creation so that we then could better cultivate and live in the world. This is part of what I think is meant in Psalm 19 when the psalmist writes that God's creation pours out knowledge without words and that we see that in the way that we look at creation. And now maybe you're the kind of person or maybe you've heard of, of people who have seen the wisdom of God in the world and that that has actually been used to lead them to question, okay, maybe there is indeed a God who has created everything that the way in which God has designed the world has actually been used to lead people into realizing that, yes, indeed, there is an intelligent, wise being over the universe who is perhaps worthy of my trust, my adoration, and my affection. What Genesis 1, what we don't get to is the fact that not everybody immediately recognizes that truth. That all of us, apart from the eyes of faith, do not know that there is a God who made everything just naturally in our own flesh. That we do what Paul says everyone does in Romans 1, that we see creation, but that our natural bent is to exchange the glory of God in creation and to begin to put our attention on created things. Even to the point to where we give our devotion, and we worship created things. And so what Genesis 1 is telling us, and if you hear anything today, hear this, is that we are not meant to marvel at creation simply for the sake of marveling at creation. But that the world God has made is intended to lead us into worship of the God who made it. That we can look at the world and see that there is the hand of a good and powerful and wise God behind it all. And that even though our eyes are clouded by sin, that God can shine the light of the gospel through that and give us the knowledge of our Creator through the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's good news that the same God who made everything in Genesis 1 is also the same God who took on human flesh and who came to live and to walk and to dwell among us. That's why we began in Colossians 1 with the reality that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that the Creator came to redeem His rebellious creation so that we would be able to see ourselves And to see the world as God intends for us to see it. And so I pray this morning that if you do have the eyes of faith and you are seeing maybe things in Genesis 1 that you've not seen before, that you would just be led to respond in worship this morning. And just a renewed strength in the reality that the world is designed in beauty and goodness and truth. And we are so tempted just to focus on what is ugly and what is wrong and what is evil, but that God's good original design is still visible in the world. And we need to be those as Christians who call that out and who see it and who point people to the beauty that exists in God's creation. But also, ultimately, we need to point people to the fact that that alone, recognizing that creation is beautiful, is not enough. That we need to be reunited with our Creator in faith. We need to look to Jesus, the one who made everything and the one who calls us to Himself. And so I pray that that will help you this morning and over the next several weeks. We're